0: Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro, thanks for listening. I want to say a few words about the attitude of the European Union toward the State of Israel. The only democracy in the Middle East. Last week, the European Union ambassador to Israel and diplomats from 19 European countries went to Israel's foreign ministry in Jerusalem and a delegation to demand explanations about a, a, a raid that was done last week by the Israeli army on the offices of seven Palestinian NGOs, non-government organizations that Israel has classified as terror groups. The European diplomats went to the Israeli foreign ministry and declared that they did not accept Israel's terrorist terror designation claiming that they have not received any evidence to validate Israel's claim that these organizations, these NGOs, are indeed fronts for terror organizations. They made a statement. They said the European Union is deeply concerned by the raids on six Palestinian civil society organizations, It took place on the morning of August 18th, and the measures that followed them, including arrest and interrogations of staff members of these organizations, as part of a worrying reduction of space for civil society in the occupied Palestinian territories. By the way, occupied Palestinian territories is derogatory term used by the European Union for Judea and Samaria. They also refer to it as the West Bank. According to this this group that went to the Israeli Foreign Ministry, these actions are not acceptable. And they went on to say, a free and strong civil society is indispensable for promoting democratic values, and for a two-state solution. The European Union is committed to its continued support to civil society that contributes to this purpose and to confidence-building between Israel and the Palestinians. The European Union stands firm with non-governmental organizations, NGOs, to uphold the right, the freedom of expression and association in the occupied Palestinian territories. In other words, not only did these so called experts and European diplomats think they know better about Israel, the, about the inner workings of these non government organizations. All these, go- all these non-government organizations of Palestinians, they have interesting names like Defense for Children International Palestine, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, Health Workers Committee, the Union of Palestinian Women's Committee. The, these, they all have very kosher sounding no- names, regardless of what they do and the european union is going to continue bankrolling these agencies now there's plenty of open source information that shows that these human rights groups are uh, groups are uh, connected to the popular front for the liberation of palestine known known as the pflp which is formally designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S., Canada, and the European Union itself. So now the Europeans say they intend to take all the necessary, necessary action to support and protect Palestinian human rights defenders and ensure the continuation of their invaluable work. Now, the European Union must know that these groups, with all the fancy-sounding names, are really fronts for terror organization. The Israeli government and real human rights organizations clearly have demonstrated that these groups constitute a network of organizations active undercover on the international front on behalf of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, supports its activities and furthers its goals. The foreign government funding received by these groups have been utilized to pay wages for activists, for martyrs, especially in Jerusalem, and for distribution of the organization's message and ideology and there are at least 70 Palestinian staff and board members who hold both positions in both these NGOs and in the Popular in the uh, popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. In other words, the European Union has to know that these organizations with all these nice names like Health Workers' Committee that the European Union is supporting is simply a front for terrorism for example a um, the PLF PF, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine terror, terrorist cell that was responsible for the murder of a 17 year old Israeli girl includes numerous members of these same government NGOs See, uh, and also one of the organizations, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, their accountant was responsible for commanding the uh, PLFP terrorist cell that carry out a bombing that killed this young Israeli girl. It's therefore intolerable that European governments are decrying the Israeli decision to designate the groups as terrorist supporters, European politicians and government bureaucrats in Europe have known for years that these organizations have links to the the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine terror group. Even worse, it's, it's an open secret that these groups whether you might consider them terrorist-supporting or not, are the worst anti-Israel actors. They have vehemently attacked Israel every minute of the day as an apartheid state. They call Israel a war criminal enterprise. They call Israel an illegal entity. This goes back to 1948. It is quite clear that these groups with these innocent-sounding names seek the complete dissolution of Israel. However, the European Union continues to invest heavily in them. Overall, the European Union behavior, which is essentially insolence toward Israel, alongside with reverence for Palestinians, the, this explains why Palestinian leaders do not understand they'll have to compromise to reach an agreement with Israel. They get support from the, union, the European Union, which that allows them to keep stubbornly opposing Israel. On the contrary, these Palestinians can safely assume that the demand for a state on the 1967 lines Is absolutely real truth, in the meantime, they can rely on the European Union to isolate, vilify, boycott, and criminalize Israel. Now, the European Union is perfectly happy to continue lavishing funds on the most anti-Israel so-called human rights groups, like those that I mentioned. But the European Union commissars are determined not to indirectly fund any more scientific research or productive commercial activities by Israelis who live or work beyond the Green Line. For example, they won't allow wine or plastic chairs produced by Jews in Judea and Samaria to be sold in Paris or Brussels without a yellow star of Jewish occupation on them. So in the warped world view of the European Union, it is logical to, 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 to treat Israel badly. And by sending a 20 person strong ambassadorial mob to Jerusalem to complain, while coddling the Palestinians seems to be an old habit that's hard, that dies hard. European countries have a historic knack for judging Jews, restricting Jews to to specific tales of settlement, and labeling them with all kinds of names while lauding the enemies of the Jews. These are the facts, and it was proven again last week, when this 20 member European Commission went to complain when Israel stopped supporting terrorist groups. And the groups hide behind all kinds of names and the Europeans know this. These are the facts on the ground. The European Union, And other European governments have regarded these Palestinian NGOs as their main Palestinian civil society partners for decades. They provided them with more than $200 million over the last decade alone. Now, they claim that you're promoting human rights and humanitarian projects. The interesting the, the emphasis is justified as part of the post-Cold War Western ethos in which vibrant civil society is believed to be central in building democracy and sustaining development. The In Europe, NGOs, non-government organizations, are regarded as far more trustworthy than any other organization's. This is used to justify the generous funds that they get. So, working with uh, uh, terrorist groups that are linked, the working with terrorist groups are, was culturally easier in contrast to other Palestinian frameworks. So the uh, there was sort of a codependence. The more European donor governments invested in these NGOs over the years, the more they needed to justify the importance of this par- partnership. And the more funds that these Palestinian NGOs received, the more projects they needed to keep the process going. So they create all kind of phony projects in order to keep getting the money from Europe. The European Union ignores the evidence that these NGOs have terror links and that using open sources which are easily accessible accessible to any government wishing to really know what's happening. The the European Union could know that at least uh, many of these organizations are simply fronts for terrorism. By the way, at least 14 NGO officials have been arrested for terror-related offenses. The European Union is turning a blind eye. It's interesting. Beside the march of these, this delegation to the Israel Foreign Ministry, it's interesting the main source of their funding was it was in jeopardy if they they would admit that they are terrorist organizations. Nine European countries: like Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Sweden issued a joint statement last month rebuking the Israeli designation that these are terrorist organizations and claiming that Israel provided no substantial evidence. But Israel did not back down. Our defense minister ratified three of these designations as security forces raided these NGOs' offices, and confiscated materials. The question that remains is, will European governments continue to deny the simple truth and the facts that are available to anyone who goes on the Internet and goes on Google? Will the ambassadors of the donor European states have the guts to? to be prepared to stop funding these organizations. One would hope that any terror affiliation or glorification of terrorism should be sufficient reason to disqualify immediately any organization from receiving public funds. So what we have, to sum up this section, is the European Union turns a blind eye to these phony organizations that claim that they're there for civil rights and for helping the population and so long, so forth, and they are simply fronts for terrorism, and the European Union turns a blind eye and has the goal to send a, a commission Uh, of the European Union to Israel's foreign ministry to complain about the fact that Israel has stopped these organizations and arrested many of their leadership who are known terrorist supporters. These are the facts on the ground. And all these years after the Holocaust, you would assume that the European Union leadership has learned something, but they've chosen to turn a blind eye to Arab, to Palestinian terrorism, and that's very sad. That's why I spent most of the this segment of the program trying to provide the listeners with the real details so when you see in the papers or in the news that Israel is cutting off funds to NGOs these NGOs are not really organization to help the population they even have all these fancy names. They are simply fronts for support of terrorism. Since I'm talking about the Palestinians, I'll uh, add very one uh, not really ra- related item. Tens of thousands of Palestinian employees in Israel stage a one-day strike. Two weeks ago, in protest, had a decision to pay their salaries into bank accounts rather than in cash. About 200,000 Palestinians cross each day into Israel or Jewish settlements for work. They earn on an average more than twice as much as those employed by Palestinian state bodies and businesses. Most of them do not have bank accounts and they put their salaries on, and putting their salaries on the books would create a new revenue source for the financially strapped Palestinian Authority. These people want to bring home Their salaries and cash so that the Palestinian Authority doesn't know about it. So it's interesting. The, The Palestinian labor minister said the new arrangements where they would pay into bank accounts was meant to protect workers' rights and there was no plan to impose new taxes. But the workers say they don't want the money to be given into a bank account because the Palestinian Authority would get their hands on it. They prefer that they get paid in cash so that – uh it's very interesting, by the way, because I saw this myself when I lived in Karnesha Omron. They prefer getting paid in cash, so even their wives – I was told this by Palestinians – they don't even want their wives to know what their salary is. And and they often spend their money on all kinds of things having nothing to do with support of their families. So that now they're being threatened by the fact that they might start getting their money put into bank accounts. So uh, I guess they'll say somehow that Israel it is at is it fault making life difficult for the workers, Palestinian workers who work in Israel. Israel simply wants everything to be straight and on the record. And the Palestinian Authority wants to know how, well, what these Palestinians are earning and the Palestinian workers don't want the Palestinian Authority to know about. These are the facts on the ground. Next Sunday, about 400 guests will gather in Basel, Switzerland to mark the 125th anniversary of the first Zionist Congress. It'll be a three day event corresponding to the same dates back in 1897. The conference is being organized by the World Zionist Organization in cooperation with the Swiss Federation of Jewish Communities and the government of the Basel Canton, that section of Switzerland. Interestingly enough, One of the main events at the gathering will be the restoration of the historical photo of Theodore Herzl, whose picture was taken on the railing of the balcony of the Three Kings Hotel in Basel. By the way, I visited there a few years ago, and I stood on the same balcony. Meantime, President of Israel Isaac Herzog is suspected not only have his picture taken on the famous balcony, but he's also had the honor to sleep in the room where the father of modern political Zionism stayed. The synagogue where Herzl prayed on the Shabbat before the first Zionist Congress has hung the screen for the Torah ark received from the Knesset 25 years ago as a gift. Interesting, there are warnings about huge pro-Palestinian demonstrations So the Swiss government has passed and has set aside 5.7 million euros for as a security budget. The Rhine River will be closed to ship traffic. Airspace will be closed for the duration of the Congress, with the area of the hall to be secured by thousands of security personnel. So that, that that's the situation uh, that's going to be in Basel. Israel today is a direct product of what transpired over three days at the Basel Municipal Casino. Theodor Herzl, who initiated the Congress, sought to arouse national sentiment and consciousness among Jews and his success in doing so animates Israeli society to this day. Zionism prior to the Congress was based on local organizations. In those three days, Zionism coalesced as a global movement which enabled it to become a player in the international arena and assert the claim for recognition of the Jewish people's right to self determination and to sovereignty in the land of Israel. Interestingly enough, most of the national movements founded over the past 200 years did not arise within democratic frameworks. In many cases, they emerged from wars and a lot of bloodshed. It's not the same with us. The Basel Congress bequeathed to Zionism and the state of Israel, democracy. A representative election system was established there. Elected institutions were established. It constituted an organizational infrastructure for the movement. That was really a remarkable achievement considering that most of the delegates at that time came from non-democratic states. That's very interesting. The The proceedings at the first Zionist Congress were completely democratic. That was a huge awakening of Jews taking Jewish destiny into their own hands while defining goals, objectives, and plans of action. One at a uh, time, there was a British writer by the name of Israel Zangwill, and he wrote, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. By the river of Basel we resolved to weep no more. And the truth of the matter is, Herzl was really imbued with a prophetic spirit, a few days after the Congress, he wrote in his diary the following, At Basel, I founded the Jewish day. He refrained from saying it publicly because people would get angry, particularly the great powers at the time. The, the main great powers he was afraid of were the Russians and the Turkish. And uh, also he was afraid of being laughed at. But uh, he goes on to write in his diary, perhaps in five years and certainly in 50 years, everyone will know it. Now, exactly 50 years went between 1898 and 1948 when the state was established. So many historians agree that Zionism is one of the most successful national movement of the modern era, if not the most successful of all. Now there there are people now who are anti Zionist or people so called post zionist but the facts speak for themselves. The goal of Zionism as defined at the first Zionist Congress in 1898 was establishing for the Jewish people a publicly and legally assured home in Eretz Israel that has been, thank God, fully realized, and it's probably the Jewish world's most important development, at least politically, of the past 2,000 years. The anniversary of the Congress provides us not only a chance to celebrate past achievements, but also an opportunity to address future challenges for the Jewish state and for Jewish people. The pre-state Zionist thinkers expected that with the establishment of the state, the puzzle of Jewish identity would be solved. The identity difficulties of their own day were attributed to the fact that the Jews were scattered across the world without a significant center, to their lack of a common language, nor did they have a lot of organized institutions or national leadership that everyone looked up to. The establishment of a state, on the contrary, was a whole different situation. In-gathering exiles, national institution, revival of the Hebrew language, this was thought at the time to be the solution. Unfortunately, they were wrong. On the contrary, when the Jewish state came into being, a struggle began over the character of the state and the public space within the state. If in the diasporic past each community chose its own path and no consensus decision was required, now we have a single shared public space and we must make decisions about the nature of that public space and the appropriate conduct within it. That has to apply equally to all. The identity clashes have intensified, or are at the root of Israel discord, and the expressions of which are also political. Right now, for example, they're, they're building a um, a public transportation system, a railway trolley, in Tel Aviv. Is the huge argument about whether it should operate on Shabbat? That argument just began and we'll see where it leads. Moreover, the identity struggles within Israel reflect in a negative way on the relationship between Israel and the Jews in the diaspora. Religion and state issues, for example, bring this into sharp relief. Additionally, having a Jewish state raises new issues and new disputes unknown to previous Jewish generations. One important example is how the Jewish state should comport itself regarding its large national minority, the Israeli Arabs. Any attempt to shape a common identity is doomed to failure. That's the way it is. I'm sorry to say it. Disagreement between Jews and Israel, between Jews in the diaspora, and between Israeli Jews and Diaspora Jews, must be recognized as a fact of life. Indeed, the era of identity politics is not unique to Israeli or Jewish society. It is apparently a global phenomenon. The unwillingness of individuals and the unwillingness of communities to adopt a shared narrative and a single vision is a product of the general mindset of our time, and it also includes accepting responsibility for the entire community. The challenge is to find a way to live together despite the controversies, and to see to it that everyone carries their burden as a member of the society, one of the issues, for example, that I don't want, I don't want to go into the details is the issue of army service. That's a story unto a itself. Our ideological discord also has a potential. The uh, there's an, a phrase in Ecclesiastes: wealthy, "Wealth hoarded by its owner to his own benefit." This agreement is a stimulating force that keeps us dynamic and vital. And uh, Israel, unfortunately, so far is not a melting pot. What might have been appropriate when a state was being built in the beginning cannot be appropriate for the liberal Israel of today. And yet, if we are to enjoy the advantages of the plurality of the many societies here, and not be defeated by disadvantages, we have to work hard at shaping agreements on how to manage our disagreements. We're going to have disagreements, that's for sure. How do we manage these disagreements? That is the great challenge of Israeli society today. The realization of political Zionism, or what they call Herzlian Zionism, has created a flourishing state far beyond the imagination of the original founders, but the identity controversy case, case still exists. The, we now have established a state, but we have a problem of the identity. So we have to be able to create a spirit of solidarity and jewish brotherhood and we have to include in the fact that we will always be internal strife that is the nature of the society internal strife but we have to learn how to manage it there is only one jewish state thank god we have it it's very different now than it was when it was created It's different now than it was when I came on Aliyah more than 50 years ago, and it will continue to undergo change. That is the nature of a healthy society. Well, we have to try to maintain a common objective, have a strong state. There will always be disagreements. That is the nature of society. But we can't let the disagreements tear us apart. There are some very basic issues in Israel. How should the Sabbath be observed publicly, even by the non-observant? As I mentioned a few minutes ago, there is a budding controversy about public transportation in Tel Aviv on the Sabbath. I'm quite sure, by the way, <clears throat> that, that in a place like Jerusalem, there would not be a dispute about that. Jerusalem is overwhelmingly traditional. And therefore, I think if they came up to a vote about public transportation, the uh, banning of transportation on the Shabbat would uh, certainly, uh, it would uh, the majority would vote for it. Tel Aviv, it's the other way around. Haifa, it's the other way around. So we have our problems, but it's the only state we have, and we must ensure that it is strong and vital and exists. So we have to figure out how to resolve some of the problems which people consider to be basic. You know, every society has uh, problems. Question is, how fundamental These problems to the existence of society. In Israel, many of the problems are indeed fundamental. Other societies don't have that. So, hopefully, with God's help, we'll work these things out. Every day here in Israel, weddings are held where Jewish men and women of European, Asian, American and African origin marry each other. In the well-kept gardens and the streets, children of all colors play together. The gathering of the in-gathering and of the nation is really something special. So it's interesting, by the way, it's something I didn't know. I just found out that the uh, Congress that uh, was held by Herzl in 1898, it was actually financed by a private Dutch banker named Jacobus Kahn. Today's Congress is is uh, led by one of the most important national bodies of the Jewish people, the World Zionist Organization. So, uh, the uh, and, and when they had the original Congress in 1898, they distributed cards. To the visitors with a picture drawn of a farmer sowing fields that leads all the way until the Western Wall. That was the dream. Today, the Western Wall is currently visited by about 12 million people every year. Israel is a leader in agricultural technology, exporting and output. The, uh, the plow didn't reach the Western Wall but it crosses the length and breadth of the country in the Negev Desert. And this brings in tens of billions of shekels every year because the arid country of 1898 has become an agricultural power. So um, the we now uh, live in an Israel that I don't think Herschel even dreamed of. It's... uh, one of the leaders in the world in measuring development, one of the most educated and richest countries in the world. The uh, it's interesting that uh, not, nothing is perfect. Not everything is perfect. The cl- our work is still ahead of us. We have a lot of work ahead of us. There is still no model society here. We have to encourage immigration. And absorbing the immigration, we have security problems, and we have, we have to connect the people. The truth of the matter is, if you stay, sit back for a moment and think about it, we live in really miraculous times. There was no Jewish state in 1939, and six million of our brethren died in Europe because the other parts of the world would not take them in, including the Western democracies. And had there been a Jewish state in 1939, a lot of Jews would have survived. So the state came a little bit late for them. And afterwards, the Zionist leadership realized that we can't let this sort of thing happen again. The Jews are welcome here, just by the fact that they're Jewish, and that really is important. There's a time between 1939 and 1945, where people were turned away from countries because they were Jewish. Here we accept them because they are Jewish, and that's a huge difference. And those of us who live in this present generations. Really have to thank God for what we have seen. I was, I was a, a youngster when the Jewish state came into being. I remember listening to the news when the UN voted for a Jewish state. And now we live in a modern, terrific place. It has a lot of problems, but those problems will be resolved because we simply have no place to go. It's our home, it's our native land, it's our ancestral heritage, and we have to make it work. That's our responsibility and our job. This week marks the 125th anniversary of the first Zionist Congress held in Basel, Switzerland. In celebration of this milestone, a conference is being held in the very same city and the very same casino where the first Zionist Congress was held. The world the current chairman of the World Zionist Organization is there, along with many other WZO department heads, our president Isaac Herzog, Swiss officials, Israeli officials, and hundreds of representatives of Israel and diaspora Jewry are all there to discuss Zionism, Israel, and celebrate this very special occasion. It seems only fitting that in honor of the 125th anniversary of the rebirth of Zionism, and of course in recognition of the upcoming 75th Israeli Independence Day, that we take the opportunity to reflect on what today's Zionism and the state of Israel means. The first Zionist Congress was held from August 29th to August 31st, three days, 1897. Afterward, Theodor Herzl famously wrote, At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be greeted by universal laughter. In five years, perhaps, and certainly in 50 years, everyone will perceive it. Herzl's statement has passed into legend. But few remember that the first Zionist Congress drafted the first manifesto of the Zionist movement. This called for promotion of Jewish settlement in Palestine, the federation of Jews into groups around the world, the strengthening of Jewish feeling and consciousness and identity, and as steps to achieve governmental grants to help achieve the Zionist vision. Historically, it's of interest to note that the Basel program was replaced in 1951 by the so-called Jerusalem program, which reflected the shift in Zionist priorities now that the state of Israel has been established. The new focus was on encouraging Aliyah and encouraging absorption of olim, supporting pioneers and encouraging private capital investment, also fostering Jewish consciousness and mobilizing public opinion for Israel and Zionism and the maintenance of and defense of Jewish rights all around the world. This program was revised again in 2004. Yet today, 125 years after Basel, there are a lot of people who feel that the Zionist enterprise has already achieved its aims. After all, there is now a thriving, secure, and democratic Jewish state. Because of this, there is danger that the 125th anniversary might be viewed as just a birthday, an opportunity for mere sentimentality, and to share some celebrations. Now, that would be unfortunate. Now, more than ever, we need to reassert and reimagine Zionist principles for today's world. When the first Zionist Congress took place, Zionism was not exactly an interesting or a trendy idea. It took time, effort, and years of work and wars for the idea of Zionism to permeate the culture of the time. Interestingly, we find ourselves in a similar situation today. While there was a period in time When Zionism became a popular idea, particularly in 1948, and ultimately led to the ushering in of a new state of Israel, recent years have again presented a downturn in the acceptance and popularity of the Zionist idea. Theories as to why this may, may be vary. But the core issues remain the same. There is a lack of consistency and understanding of what Zionism and in an independent Jewish state mean today. Let's look at the facts. We Jews are no longer the same wandering, constantly persecuted people we once were. We have our challenges. Anti-Semitism is on the rise in a lot of liberal countries, including the United States. Iran is creeping ever closer to obtaining a nuclear weapon, which they claim they will use to destroy the Jewish state. But all in all, we are a flourishing, successful, and strong nation with a mighty country to call our own. You look at all the other countries that came into existence since the Second World War, and we, I think we can honestly say, are the most successful. But we still continue to find ourselves faced constantly with the question of the relevance of Zionism and the need for the Jews to have their own state. I know there are many Jews, many popular Jews, who say it's nice that the Jews have their own state so that I will have a place to go if I'm in trouble as a Jew. I consider this to be a very selfish attitude, not only toward Zionism, but toward Judaism. Imagine if all of us took the time to think about answers. It is at times easy to take Israel for granted, especially for those who were born well after the early days and the early wars and the present wars of the state. If the Zionist mission is to continue, we must recommit ourselves to its values. You have to really think about the question, what does Zionism actually mean today And why should it be important? In considering the future of Zionism, 125 years after Basel, we need to consider recent changes in the Jewish and wider world. Firstly, of course, while the age of a mass Aliyot may have come to an end, there are still millions of Jews around the world for whom Israel is the center of their religious and cultural existence, and we have a responsibility to support them. I think it is the responsibility of the Jewish state to worry about Jews around the world. When I say worry, I include things like education, about Jewish education, That's something that is important and Israel must support. Most of us know what the core mission of Zionism is, the right of the Jewish people to have our own state and our own ancient homeland, Israel, Palestine. But this mission should also account for the global realities of our time. Zionism is also the seemingly obvious idea that this right should not be globally questioned or doubted. No other nation's existence is ever up for debate. We cannot allow the state of Israel to be the subject of different rules than other nations have. You never hear it said about any nation that it has a right to exist. Israel is the only nation for which the expression it has a right to exist is used. Obviously, Zionism is the understanding we're a sovereign nation that will take care of ourselves under any circumstance, And this is going to be tested very shortly uh, if the Americans go back into the agreement that will allow Iran to become a nuclear power. We will never again wait it out while others openly threaten to destroy us. Let's leave aside the uh, fact that even a Jew who wants to keep all the commandments, all the mitzvot, Cannot do so if they don't live in the land of Israel. There are a number of uh, mitzvot commandments that can only be performed in the land of Israel. There are there there are those who claim that if you look carefully at the list of the six hundred and thirteen mitzvot commandments, there are. Uh, uh, um, 58 that are associated with the land of Israel and can only be uh, accomplished in the land of Israel. The chief rabbi of Haifa many years ago, he has since passed away, he said to me that Chet Nun, 58, means chen, which means favor. If you don't live in Israel, you can't do the 58 mitzvot, and therefore you are lacking chen. You're lacking something that a Jew should have. Now, Zionism is a belief that all Jews have a home in Israel. Aliyah should be a goal for us all, but that means Israel must make the integration of olim A top priority, Israelis must understand that Olim belong here just as much as anyone lucky to have been born here. And everybody must make an effort to treat Olim as family. They are family. They just came here late. (laughs) And that's the way it is with family. Zionism must include fostering and engaging diaspora Jewish communities with Israel in a positive way so we always maintain a connection with our brothers and sisters abroad. And I think one of the main things in this area is Jewish education. Now, of course, Zionism is also the continued fight against anti-Semitism wherever it rears its ugly head. Zionism is pride in our country and our people, our culture, and our success. Zionism today, 2,000 years after the exile, is a celebration of all the Jewish people have accomplished and how far we have come. It's the acknowledgement that our strength and the opportunities we have because of that strength. So the Jewish people, Israel, and the Zionist movement all look different at 20, 125 years after the Basel Statement. But the years have not made Zionism any less important. We cannot forget that Zionism will always have a place and a purpose. This landmark anniversary of the first Zionist Congress and of Israel's independence is a perfect opportunity for us to remember where we came from, reflect on where we are, and reinvigorate ourselves for all that is to come with a commitment to the idea that binds us all to Zionism. These are the facts on the ground. Incidentally, one of the most recent achievements of Zionism, political Zionism, if you will, was the Abraham Accords. They are the most significant diplomatic breakthrough for Israel since the peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt. Expanding the circle of peace and cooperation is a vital strategic interest that concerns not just governments, but also civil society people, businessmen, and private citizens. Israel has a vital role to play, in bringing innovation and technology to to the rest of the world. This is a country with no basic resources other than the intelligence and the initiative of its people. We have no coal, we have no iron, we have no oil, we have nothing that other nations have. We only have our people. So, by the way, you can also say that the Holocaust is a very good argument for Israel's existence. There has to be a place where Jews can go, no questions asked when they're in trouble. But it's not simple for a reason like that that Israel exists. It's vital that education provides positive reasons, Jewish identity, and for collective collective belonging. Any kind of new Zionist program should have a bedrock of community, peace, innovation, and education. That is what you need in any new Zionist program. Change is really the law. Only by being alert to the ever-shifting landscape will be able to ensure that Zionism remains as significant in the 21st century as it was in the 20th. Zionism didn't finish with the realization of Herzl's prophecy. Zionism is is a project in progress. Even now, here in Israel, we haven't defined exactly what a Jewish society is. For example, one of the newest arguments, which going to come up, and particularly in the next election, is about public transportation on the Sabbath. It's something we didn't we didn't have our own country, and now we have our own country. but We want to make sure that it reflects Jewish values, and Jewish values in particular, it's not just the modern values of secular education and technology and all the modern stuff. Jewish values goes back more than 3,000 years. It's based on the Torah that has kept us alive, even after 2,000 years of an often bitter exile. So you can't come into a country and finally have a state of your own after 2000 years of diaspora and exile and decide you want to do away with Jewish law. The state of Israel, even if everyone is not particularly religious personally, and when I say religious, I am not talking about the laws between man and man. You can, you, you don't have, you don't have to particularly be religious not to steal, not to make noise in public and things like that, that's in a sense has nothing to do with religion. It has to do what we call menschlichkeit, being a proper human being. But we have to be beyond that because we reflect 3,000 years of history primarily based on our honor and our commitment to Torah. You can't come and make a Jewish state and throw away those values that kept you alive for all those years in the diaspora. So in like it says in the Ethics of the Fathers, it may not be our duty to finish the work, but we are not at liberty to neglect it. We want the country to be a Jewish country a modern country, and reflect Jewish values that are time-honored, mostly based on the Torah. It's a tough job, and we face these kind of problems today, but it's nice to have your own country where you can do the fighting around about how you should behave. We're here, it's like a family. The Jewish people is a big family and families have intra-family arguments and discussion. But the fact that they're a family is what keeps them together. And the, the state of Israel is based on the fact that the Jews are a family with the responsibility to those of us who live here and a responsibility of those who don't here and who don't live here, and have not yet made Aliyah. Because this is the anniversary of the formation of the Zionist organization, started back in 1897, 125 years ago, so I want to say a few more words. Essentially, the meeting that was held in Basel was a commitment to return the Jewish people to their historic homeland built upon religious Zionism that had animated the faith for 2,000 years. The sheer force of Herzl's will projected itself into the highest halls of power and engaged in political statecraft against seemingly overwhelming obstacles Resulting in the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, 50 years later. While 2,000 years of marginalization and persecution as a minority living in a diaspora, let alone the genocide of 6 million in the Holocaust, it could never be remedied. It's done already, it happened already. The pursuit of Israel's creation again transformed the Jewish people, gave it hope for one of dispersion and powerlessness into one of strength and action. Now, if we look back, Herzl's dream of 1897 has been mostly realized. There is a Jewish state, a flourishing Jewish state, that continues to provide a welcoming haven for Jews from around the world, and in addition, is a pioneering force in areas of science, medicine, technology, and agriculture. And yet, the existence of the State of Israel has not done the one thing that Herzl thought it would do. It has not solved the problem of anti-Semitism. And also, Israel is not a perfect utopia. Herzl and his fellow Zionists back in Basel in 1897 could not have foreseen Israel having to defend itself in eight wars since 1948 The still unresolved Israel-Palestinian conflict, the ongoing threats posed by malicious states like Iran and terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, and coordinated international efforts to marginalize and delegitimize the Jewish state, including the absurd claim that Zionism is racism and also there are hateful BDS campaigns. Anti-Semitism continues to be a very serious issue with a lot of worrying manifest manifestations that would have been familiar to people living back in 1897. But we've also seen new forms that weren't even imaginable then. They have online hate and harassment. Or the blaming and scapegoating of Jewish individuals and organizations for the actions of the Jewish state. Last year, the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL in the United States, recorded the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States since the 1970s. One major spike came during the conflict between Israel And the terror group Hamas in May 2021. They tracked. increase in incidents including 15 assaults and displays of anti-Israel hate. Jews were brazenly attacked in public places in major cities as New York and Los Angeles simply for the crime of being Jewish. Likewise, in the United States and around the world, we have seen political leaders and candidates in the far right these anti-Semitic talking points, points and those on the far left using anti- Zionist rhetoric that is anti-Semitism at its core. For example, in Boston, an anti-Semitic group created what they called a mapping project claiming to expose a sinister Jewish conspiracy with interconnected nodes of Zionism policing an empire, all kind of crazy things. They invoke classic anti-Semitic tropes and endanger the entire Jewish community, accusing Jewish houses of worship and service-oriented non-profit Jewish groups of a libel of dual loyalty—that they're not loyal to the United States. The Jewish organizations are doing their best to combat anti-Semitism from all sides and fighting those who would seek to undermine Israel's legitimacy. But the fact that such virulent anti-Semitism is aimed at what they call the Zionists, meaning the Jews, were perhaps one of the biggest challenges of our time. Anti-Zionism is simply anti-Semitism. At this moment, there is need for the entire Jewish world to stand together against this new and dangerous form of anti-Semitism. We cannot guarantee a secure Jewish future without strong efforts to push back against the extreme anti-Zionism, which is anti-Jewishness, Rampant in many countries and seeping into international forums and in places like legislatures, and in particular in the United States on college campuses. Despite these obstacles, the, the anniversary of the Basel meeting in 1897 is there is much to celebrate. We are stronger now than we were in 1897 we have a state. The uh, truth of the matter is, if you think about it, the first Zionist Congress in 1897 offered strength to Jews around the world and redefined our narrative. So we have to draw strength from that moment and, and let it nourish us to meet the challenges ahead. I want to switch to an entirely different topic, but I think it's one that's important, even though it's pretty much beneath the headlines everywhere. The United Nations has given the Palestinians the unique status of perpetual refugees, which can be handed down from one generation to the next, and the United Nations Relief Works Agency for Palestine. It's co- called the U- UNRWA, and the it's been appointed to care for the needs of the Palestinians and their needs alone, while all other refugees in the world are cared for by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. In other words, there is a UN. A refugee group only for the Palestinian refugees. Keep in mind, there are plenty of refugees around the world, particularly in uh, Africa. Now, the uh, Palestinian Authority ambassador to the UN told reporters that the Palestinian Authority is renewing its push for full membership in the U.N. instead of non-member status, which it has today. This would unilaterally grant the Palestinians full international recognition of statehood without negotiating any agreement with Israel over borders, security, and other critical issues. It's interesting, they, they, they're pushing to become a state with no definition for example of what its boundaries are. So there is inherent paradox under the UN definition in Palestinian ideology the same people would be considered refugees even if they live in their only recognized state. If they declare a state of Palestine in Palestine Then how could the people who live there be considered refugees? Today, Palestinian refugees live anywhere and everywhere in the world, uniquely retain their refugee status, even when they have citizenship and they can vote. The UNRWA currently serves 5.6 million refugees in Gaza, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria. It has a 1.6 billion dollar budget. Budget for 2022 which is 817 million is for core programming. To date this year, the organization has received 838 million dollars. That is a lot of money. The leaders of the uh, in the U.N. claim that they have a chronic lack of funds because of what they blame the Coordinate Campaign to delegitimize UNRWA. But let's just consider for a minute the real reasons that the need for this UNRWA, UNRWA, is being questioned why the Palestinian topic does not have the priority it once enjoyed, despite older mandated U.S. discussions about it. UNRWA was founded in 1949 to provide what was meant to be a temporary solution until the Palestinian refugee problem could be resolved. At that time, in 1949, there were approximately 726,000 Arabs who came under their auspices. This is the UN's figures. Today, the figure of Palestinian refugees in the care of the United Nations stands at more than 5.5 million. Keep that in mind. It started at three quarters of a million. Today it's more than five and a half million. Incredibly, over the past seven decades, the number has grown by millions. The UN has not helped a single Palestinian refugee solve their official refugee status. On the contrary, they've done just the opposite. One reason, another reason for the drop in funding, is because the reports would show where the money's going. Various NGOs researching the textbooks and education system in the Palestinian schools that are funded by the UN found evidence of support of terrorism and the cult of martyrdom. That's what the U.S. money is being used for. There also have been acknowledged cases of Hamas creating terror tunnels and weapons stores under United Nations schools in Gaza. It's been more than 70 years since the Palestinian refugee crisis was ostensibly created when the Arab world rejected Palestinian statehood alongside the state of Israel. Incidentally, over the last couple of years, several Arab countries have signed peace agreements with Israel, but the Palestinians still hope they will both gain international recognition as an independent state and keep international aid as perpetual refugees. In other words, the Palestinian leadership wants to have it both ways. You want to create a state. At the same time, they want to be considered refugees. Obviously, then any, any logic it doesn't make any sense. So far from transforming Palestinian refugees into self-sufficient individuals, the UN has fostered dependency and a culture of entitlement, giving the Palestinians no motivation to return to the negotiated table in good faith and furthered false dreams of a right of return to destroy Israel instead of building lives based on peace and economic security alongside the Jewish state. That's By the way, they don't even provide enough jobs for their own people. If you go to any of the the border crossing points between the so-called West Bank and Israel proper, like uh, like uh, near uh, uh, near Bethlehem, for example, on the south side of Jerusalem, or um, in near Sab or any other places, every morning there are long lines of Palestinians waiting to get into Israel to work because the Palestinian Authority does not provide work for them. Even they're getting millions and millions of dollars. The leadership skims it off the top, and that's it. The truth of the matter is that the United Nations Relief Agency for Palestine, the UNRWA, doesn't deserve more funding without undergoing a dramatic reform to ensure that it is alleviating the Palestinian refugee situation instead of perpetuating it. You know, if someone comes along, somebody came from Mars and looked at the situation here, and they would see how ridiculous it is. The UN has a special organization using hundreds of millions of dollars every year to support Palestinian and, Palestinians and keep them as refugees. By the way, In the areas uh, under the Palestinian Authority, for example, these UN employees, there are a lot of them. That's where they make their salaries. The UN is paying their salary. So these people are not looking for any kind of relief. They like the situation the way it is because it gives them no motivation whatsoever to create an independent state. While they're living on handouts from the United Nations and from a lot of European nations. They they continue to indulge in the refugee status. The whole thing is a phony from top to bottom, and yet it continues from year to year. It's more than 70 years already. This doesn't get many headlines in the Western press, but these are the facts on the ground. So, in, in a sense, the Palestinian Authority is running a scam. They don't do really anything towards having to create their own state, even though they want their own state to be recognized by the UN. And it's a very good possibility that, they'll, that they will achieve this. A state with no defined borders and a state that is built on terrorism. A state in which there are no elections, a state in which the leadership skins, skims off millions of dollars of aid from the UN and from other countries and makes themselves rich. So this is this is really a scandalous situation, and one wonders how long it will continue. As I said, there were less than a million real refugees back in 1948. Today, there are five and a half million. They're already the fifth generation of refugees. While most of the refugee problems in the world have been resolved, these people are not looking for a resolution because they like the situation as it is. In the meanwhile, they don't provide enough resources of work for their own people, and literally tens of thousands of Palestinian Arabs come into Israel every day in order to earn a livelihood for their families. These are the facts on the ground, and unfortunately, the world doesn't seem to know or to care about this situation. It is a scandalous situation and really should not be allowed to continue. Now, the reason I spend so much time on this is because it doesn't get the headlines, and it should, because it is a situation that unless something is done about it, it's going to, as I said, they're ready in the fifth generation of so-called refugees, while other refugee problems in the world have been resolved. But these these people, the ones who run it, like the salaries that they make. They like the, the, the money that they cream off the top. And they, they look at the beautiful villas that the leadership lives in. Well, the the average man in the street has to run around looking for work many times, thousands of times, going to Israel to solve their problem. It's a sad situation, one that should get more attention. Thanks for listening. This is Jay Shapiro, and God willing, until next week.
1: Where can you get the inside news on Israel? Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Darba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover.